before we get into it, I want to talk to you about our human desire to be validated. Our, our desire for somebody to tell us that, uh, that things are good, that we are good, that everything, like it's somebody to help us feel better about ourselves. You know, there's so many things in this world that can make us feel down about ourselves. And so there's in us this desire for, for somebody to tell us that we have value, that we are important. And so actually like our brains, they seek after validating experiences like our minds, the way that they work is like we kind of wait for this, these moments and we, we move after these moments where somebody tells us that we are okay, that we're not just the okay, but that we're good, that we're valuable, that, that the things we do are meaningful. And so, you know, what we do is like, we end up like seeking after this really, really hard. We long for somebody to validate us. And so, uh, so we do and say all sorts of things that will make people kind of affirm us, that will make people say good things about us. And, and so this desire to be validated, I want to talk about the general desire. It's not wrong because the truth is we have value. Like we have innate value inside of us. We are actually important. The Lord says we are made in the image of God, right? So, so the, the desire to be validated is not the core problem, but the core problem is how high does that desire get lifted? How much do we want to be validated? How much do we need to prove ourselves? And so, uh, so sometimes this desire can be so strong that it can lead us to an unhelpful place. And that's what we see here today. So uh, Exodus fifteen twenty two. what has happened is that God has directed the people right after they, they go through the Red Sea. God has directed them through. He took them through Moses. Um, you know, he, he held out his staff, split the waters. They were able, like he showed up. God showed up in this moment of hopelessness and did something that nobody expected that he would do. And so, so now Moses, what he's going to do is he's going he's gonna, to like move them forward. They're going to go out past the Red Sea. And so... In 1522, it says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness. So now we're talking three days after the Lord has saved them in this mighty way through the Red Sea in the wilderness, and they found no water. So, so three days they've gone. Now we can be left to assume that they've kind of had supply with them as they left Egypt and even as they went through the Red Sea, but, but, you know, you have your planners in the group and they are like, you know, we're starting to run low on water and we need to come to a place with water. And so they're going through now the wilderness and they've gone one day and they see nothing. Yeah. And, and then they go a uh, day two and they see nothing. And day three, they notice that their supply is starting to get really slim and they still see Nothing. And so, uh, so we think that they have no water, but, but the indication is that they probably do have water, but they're still like waiting to, to refill the supply. So, so now I want you to imagine that, that you have no water and you're walking through the wilderness, but the story that you tell yourself is, oh, we're going to a land flowing with milk and, and honey. So surely as we're going through the desert, like finding water should be no problem. Like, imagine that that's a story that you tell yourself, but then each day passes by and still you find nothing. So verse 23, this is what it says. It says, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. The word Marah literally means bitter. 
Like that's what it's saying here. And so, uh, so we'll talk, we'll, we'll come uh, back to that in just a second. But this, this idea of bitterness, it's more than just a taste thing. Like, I, I, like I, I think we read this and we think, oh, like they just didn't like the water. But, but uh, you know, if you have water out there in the wilderness, it's, uh, you know, think of all the minerals that have collected in this. I imagine this water is pretty salty, actually. Like it's, it's pretty, like it's got a lot of salt in it. Uh, and and you, on top of that, you add uh, other minerals into the water and it, it actually kind of becomes dangerous to drink. So this word bitter has, can also be like translated poison. Like it's not good for them to drink. So I had this, uh, this, I have to tell you about this thing that happened to me one time. Uh, so I was here, we were actually had a work day here. It was very hot that day. It was last year, very hot that day. And, uh, and I was sweating and it was, uh, it was just, it was a long day. And so I get uh, home and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling a little lightheaded because I'm, uh, you know, dehydrated and this kind of stuff. And, and so in our cabinet, we have this stuff called sole water. Sole water is a very high, like, salt content water. So basically what you do is you put, like, that much salt in the b- bottom of a big bottle, and then it just sits and it, it salinates the water. It makes the, the water super salinated. Why do you do that? Well, when you drink salt water or when you drink, when you have salt in your body, it holds on to moisture in your body. So it helps you to, it replenishes electrolytes and all of this stuff. And I was like, you know, I'm feeling a little out of electrolytes light right now. I guess I should probably drink some of this. So what I did is um, I poured a little bit in a glass, just like that much. And uh, what I didn't know that you're supposed to mix it with more water. I did not know this. And so I took a drink of this water and instantly I realized I have made a huge mistake. (laughs) I feel this uh, this water, it burns all the way down, but down the, the back of my throat, I can feel it sitting in my stomach and burning everything. I go to Andrea and I was like, um, I think I've just done something really, really bad. She's like, what'd you do? And I told her, and she's like, no, you didn't. And so, like, I, um, five minutes later, I'm at the toilet now, and I'm uh, kind of regurgitating everything that was inside of me right now. I've been taken to this worst place. We called poison control because of this water that I drank, because I, like, they were, we, should we go to the emergency room? Am I going to run out of, like, fluids here? What's going on? And so it was an awful, awful experience. Um, I imagine that that's kind of like the water that we're dealing with here at Marah. It's very unsafe for them to drink. And so, so the Israelites, they named this place Marah, and uh, we'll talk about this bitterness and what it, what it does to the Israelites. So verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? So, so uh, the word grumbled, this is the first time that this word occurs in the Bible. It's the first time we see it, and it happens like seven times in the next three chapters. So, so they grumbled against Moses, and uh, it doesn't just describe, this word grumbled does not just describe the words that they used. Because the words that they used aren't really all that bad, especially in this first instance. It doesn't describe the words that they used, it describes the way that they used the word describes their intent behind the word. It describes the posture of the, their heart. It describes their attitude. And so, the, because the question, the question that they asked is, uh, what shall we drink? That's not, 
that's not a bad question to ask. It's a reasonable question. They come to this place, they've been waiting three days, and you could just ask the question, what's, what are we going to drink? Because you don't know. Like, you don't, you don't know how it's going to work out. You could even ask, could we be provided with something to drink? But the way that this is asked is, is it's actually kind of used to cut against the leader that God gave them. Okay, Moses, what are we going to drink now? So I want to talk to you about grumbling. Uh, it's another, we could also call it complaining. Uh, grumbling, complaining. This is what this is. I want to define it for us because there are some really specific things that happen when we grumble. So uh, grumbling or complaining is your attempt to feel validated in a negative experience. It's your attempt to feel validated in a negative experience. And this is how you do it. Your attempt to feel validated in a negative experience by number one, gaining attention from others. So, as the Israelites are out there grumbling about their situation, I imagine that part of what they're trying to do is they're they're trying to get others to see them, to recognize the distress that they're in. And this also kind of snowballs into a bigger situation because it's not it starts maybe with a select few in the group, but then eventually it spreads to the whole congregation. So they're trying to gain attention from some other people. The second thing that it does is we also try to gain sympathy from others. So it's your attempt to feel validated by attempting to gain sympathy. Now, I want to tell you, like, if you're in the middle of a hard situation, it's not like wrong to want sympathy, right? Like this is, this is, you want other people to see you and to understand you. And that's like, that's really, really valuable. But then you start adding other things on top of that sympathy. So the third thing, blaming an external source for victimizing. So, so, now it's not just about you gain sympathy, yes, but at the same time, what you're trying to do is point the finger. You're trying to lift yourself up while you put someone else down. And the fourth thing that happens is you actually discredit that external source. So it could be someone or something. You could actually be blaming a situation, but, but sometimes you're actually blaming a person. That's what happens right here. They point to Moses. They blame Moses for what happens to them. And then they try to discredit Moses. Like the way that they ask the question is their attempt to say, Moses, do you really know what you're doing? What are we going to drink now? We haven't seen water in three days. How are we supposed to be supplied and taken care of if we don't have any water with us, Moses? And so all of it is this. It's not just an attempt. It's like sympathy is a good thing. And it's valuable to even want sympathy. But then on top of that, you add, you're the reason that I'm in this situation. You add the blaming, and on top of that, you add the discrediting. You make someone else look bad so that you can be lifted up. So I read some psychology articles this week because it's really interesting. There's been a lot of research done on what happens inside of our brains when we complain. There are some really interesting things that happen in our brains when we complain. So, so you, you don't complain just because you don't have what you want. Like, that's not the reason that you complain. You complain because your solution to not having what you want is to feel better about yourself, to kind of lift yourself up in the midst of that situation. So I don't have what I want. And now because of that, now my life is harder. So now my answer to that is I want to kind of lift myself up. That's why you complain. You need to feel validated. You need to feel better in the midst of this negative experience. And so 
So this is actually how people develop a victimhood mentality. Because they get so addicted to the experience of when things go wrong, somebody validates me. I blame somebody else. Somebody else agrees with me. Uh, they turn every... So then this, this thing happens where they start turning everything into a negative experience. Because, because that feeling of being validated, it might be a miserable things. Like if they, their mindset is set on making everything miserable, but that feeling of being validated by other people is so important to them that they keep pursuing it and keep pursuing it. And so when we see the word grumbling here, it, it identifies not only the words for us, but it identifies the intent behind the words. Because it's not wrong for them to seek the solution to the question, what shall we drink? But it is wrong for them to try to lift themselves up while tearing their leader down in order to say, what shall we drink? So, uh, verse 25. So Moses, he hears them complaining, and this is what it says. It says, he cried to the Lord. and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So, uh, so this is actually not a miracle. This is a miracle not unlike the, uh, the, it is a miracle. It's a miracle not unlike the first miracle that Moses performed for the Israelites when, uh, when he showed them, hey, I, God is working in this. God, he goes to the elders, and he says, hey, God's going to deliver you, and just to prove it, that, that the Lord is the I am. I'm gonna, uh, you know, his hand was leprous. He, stuck, he pulled it out. There's disease on him, but now he sticks that diseased hand back inside his cloak. It comes out, and it's healed, right? There's this idea of the Lord pulling away disease and pulling away sickness. And so in this case, he performs this miracle and it pulls all of the sickness out of the water. It pulls the, the danger out of the water for them. So, so get this, they grumble, they complain. And how does God respond? God hears it. God hears them and he helps them. Like he was gracious, even though they lacked humility, even though they attempted to lift themselves up uh, before their leader and tear their leader down. He was gracious to them. He provided this way out. And so, so uh, Exodus fifteen twenty five. there, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them. So you know what? He's, he's bringing them to this place that they ended up calling bitter. And this place, uh, there, it was a test. What we're told is that what they experienced, what they went through here was a test. So why does God test them? Like, what is God trying to accomplish with this test? Uh, let's uh, let's uh, ask a different question as we think about this. Why do you take tests in school? Like, why do you, uh, you know, when you're in school, why do your teachers make you take tests? The answer is not like to give you anxiety and to make you worry about how well you're going to do and uh, worried about, oh, maybe I'll underperform. No, that's not the answer. The real answer that you take tests is because tests reveal your progress so that you know what you need to work on. And your teacher understands also how they're doing as a teacher as well, right? So tests reveal your progress. Is your understanding where it needs to be? So tests show you what you need to work on. And so, um, you know, with this idea, when God tests us, he's actually showing us something about ourselves. So at least we can know where we are. So, so God's tests reveal what we're made of. God's tests reveal what we're made of. This is 
This is why God is testing in this instance. So what did the tests reveal here? Well, they reveal grumbling. They reveal that the people are discontented. They reveal that the people are complaining. So why is that important? Why is that important? I just want, want you to know, not once in this entire passage does the Lord say, how dare you complain? Not once in this entire passage does Moses or the Lord say, don't complain. We're going to actually see what he says instead. So, so why is this important? Uh, it's important because the tests are actually preparing them for something. So verse 26 gives us an idea of what these tests are preparing them for. 26. So, uh, so before this, he said, uh, he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So, so he's wanting them to understand, hey, I'm not going to treat you like the Egyptians. You remember in those plagues, uh, some of those plagues led to disease for the Egyptians. I will keep you from those diseases. I will not put them on you. I will not plague you like I plagued the Egyptians if you show yourselves to be the kind of people who can listen to my voice and can do that which is right in my eyes, who can give ear to my commandments, who can keep my statutes. What God is actually preparing them for, like the thing that he's trying to show them is their level of preparedness for the kind of relationship that they have with them. Like, as they walk with him, what is this relationship going to look like? Like, yes, he's rescued them, and yes, he is a savior to them, but he's also called them to be a blessing in the land that they're in. And and in order to be a blessing, there's actually kind of a, a maintenance of this relationship with God that they need to keep in check. Their ability to be a blessing is going to be directly dependent on their their ability to follow the Lord's commands, their ability to be obedient. So God's preparing them, and he's trying to check and see and help them understand, are they ready for obedience? Are we ready for obedience? You know, because God wrecked Egypt with disease in these plagues, but, but if we're ready for obedience, you know what he's going to do? He's going to be a healer for us. He will be faithful. Are we ready to remain faithful to him? You know, as I look at the story, I just, I don't know. Because three days after the Red Sea, which is like the most amazing miracle that anybody has ever seen in their life, they start complaining. So Israel, like this test, God tells you, hey, I just tested you. What did the test show you? Well, it shows this complaining. So, so answer the question. Uh, let's look at why they named this place and what they named this place. They named the place Bitter. Okay, so so think about, like, you when you name a place, you go to a place, you sit there, like, you're like, okay, I'm going to come up with a name for this place. They've already had all of their experiences. And even the name that they came up with for the place was a complaint. But didn't God, like, make the water sweet? Like, didn't God fix it? But they, the thing that they remember, the thing that they hold on to for this place is bitter. Oh, it's so interesting because he told them, I'm testing you. He says, I'm testing you. What is this test going to reveal? And then Israel's response is, you know what? We'll call this place. We'll call this place bitter. So uh, verse 27, the test ends. And, and so then they come 
to Elam, where they were uh, 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. The implication is not much further past the springs of bitterness was this place of abundance, was this oasis in the middle of the desert. And the narrative actually, it leaves us to assume that this is, like, this is not much further on. And so, so God was taking them to this good place the whole time. God was taking them to this good place, but they show that they didn't trust him. They don't trust him. So uh, test number two, we move on to test number two. So they leave this place called Elam and they, they go through the wilderness and they actually, they're traveling for like another month and a half through the wilderness. And just so we don't forget, Over the course of the last 48 days, here are the things that they have experienced. First of all, they experienced God's grace in being with them in the pillar of cloud and fire. His presence being their provision. He shows up with them. And then they experience God's grace in rescuing them through the Red Sea. And then after that, they experience God's grace towards them in, in fixing the water that was at Marah. And then God's grace, they experience God's grace in bringing them to this place called Elam and, and stopping them there. And, and apparently, they get to this place where they just hit their limit again. Like, like uh, 48 days is about, is about as much as space as they have to where God's grace starts to become meaningless to them. And so, verse 2 of chapter 16. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. So uh, just take note, um, the growing nature of their complaint. 48 days later, it's not just some of the people, it's the whole congregation. Every single person is involved in reinforcing this attitude of grumbling and complaining. And now it's not just against Moses. Now it's against Moses' family. Now it's against Aaron. It's against more of the people who are leading them. And on top of that, what are they doing? Well, they're, they're exaggerating details, right? Like they're, they're making bigger of Egypt. They're, Egypt was a really good place, let me tell you. You guys, uh, so there's this place in Chicago called Texas de Brazil. I don't know if you know about Texas de Brazil, but it is, uh, it is this place where you essentially go and you get like all you can eat meat. Like, it is just this place of abundance, and it is like, it is a dream for me to be able to go to Texas Day, Brazil, one day. And you know what the Israelites are saying? They're saying, hey, when we were in Egypt, you know, that place where we were in slavery, and like, we were very oppressed, and we hated it, and we wanted to get out of there? That was like being at Texas Day, Brazil, all the time. We had our plenty. We had our fill. We lacked nothing. Don't you remember that? Now we lack everything, but back then, we lacked nothing. So, uh, verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a portion every day that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So, so, 
like they're complaining, they're in the midst of their complaining, and the Lord doesn't say, hey, stop complaining. What he says is, I have another test. And, and he actually tells them how this test is going to work ahead of time. I need to know whether you will obey my commandments, whether you will obey my words. So here are my words. Here are my commandments. He gives them two commands here that they will need to obey. Number one, every day they gather what they need for that day. They will have none left over. That's the first command that they have to obey. Will they be able to obey this command? The second command they give, uh, one day a week, they will have to gather double on that day so that they are not gathering on the seventh day. So, uh, so, so uh, the, the first test when they were at Marah, it was a test to show them what was in their heart that they might actually understand. Do you see your complaining? Do you see your attitude? Do you see that this, you name this place for your poor experience when the Lord even showed up in the midst of that experience? This second test, though, this test is, it moves beyond their heart and actually looks at what is in their actions. Are they the kind of people who will obey or not? Like, that's what, that's what we're discovering. And so, uh, verse 8 of chapter 16 says this. Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. And so like he, he's like, he's kind of explaining himself here. And what he does is he interrupts himself. Like, let's talk about what you're really doing, Israel. So he, he's kind of going on, let, let me teach you a lesson. And then as, in the middle of the lesson, as he's explaining what this law means to them, he stops himself and he says, what are we? Like, when, when you complain against me, Moses is saying, Israel, when you're frustrated with me, I didn't put myself. In fact, you want to talk about my attitude with the Lord? I told the Lord that I didn't want to do this, okay? I did not choose to be here. The Lord put me here, okay? And so when you complain against us, who are we? We're, we're not the ones you're complaining against. You're complaining against the one who put us here. You need to understand that that's what you're doing. Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And this is, this is in some ways to, to show them, hey, just so you know, that last test, it revealed this complaining. Let's, since you refuse to acknowledge it, let's talk about what that's really showing us. It's showing us a problem with your hearts. It's showing us that you don't trust the Lord. You're telling him, every time you tell us we don't know what we're doing, you're telling him that he doesn't know what he's doing. Every time, so imagine this. This is crazy. The Lord is there. Like he has not left. The pillar of cloud and fire is visible to them as they are complaining. They, like he's standing right there, and, and as they complain, you're showing, you know what, Israel, you're showing that you think your provision and your care comes from something else, because obviously you don't think he's providing for you. You're saying that you deserve better than what he's done for you. You're showing that your hearts don't trust him. So Israel, I just want you to understand what's going on. That first test revealed some things that are really problematic. So, uh, so on, in verses 11 and 12, he goes on, and, and, and the Lord actually shows up in this moment. So, so Moses is kind of standing up there. He's addressing the people. 
and then like something happens where the Lord appears in the moment. We don't know exactly what that looks like because he is there in the pillar of cloud and fire, but something drastically changes and the Lord appears. Like he shows up right there and, and all of the people are watching as this happens. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 11, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. He, he keeps coming back to them and saying, you know what, I hear you. I hear you when you complain. I hear the things that you're saying. I'm not far from you. I am with you. And so say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the I am your God. So, so Moses and Aaron, they're, they're addressing Israel here. And, and right here, the Lord shows up and says, you know what? Uh, you've been grumbling. And now I'm interested in talking about that grumbling. And he doesn't say, again, he doesn't say, stop grumbling. In fact, what he says is, I've heard your distress. I've heard uh, your need for sympathy, your need for understanding. And so you know what? I'm going to provide for you. And, and on the surface, uh, as we read this story, we might be inclined to think that the moral of the story is, if you're grumbling, just stop. Like, uh, you know, like this idea that, you know, if you're grumbling, if you're saying things like you just need to stop, you're grumbling. But, but, but that's not here. The text is actually showing us something deeper about grumbling. Because his commands have nothing to do with grumbling. However, we will discover that their grumbling has everything to do with how they respond. So, um... Verse 13, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. So, so here the Lord, he's remaining faithful to his promise. He's providing for them meat. And verse 14 goes on and talks more about their provision. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine lake-like thing, finest frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? So, so for what it's worth, the name of this bread, they call it, what is it? This is the name. It's manna is uh, actually a question. It is, what is it? So when they talk about manna from heaven, every time they say the word manna, they're asking the question, what is it? Because they've never seen anything quite like this before. And so sometimes they use the word bread to talk about it. And so, so I don't know really what this was or what it looked like, but I can tell you what I would like to imagine it was like. I think it's a little like Pillsbury Grants materializing on the ground. A fine flake-like thing. You heard that, didn't you? And so I imagine these flakes of Pillsbury Grants all over, and they are just kind of enjoying uh, this, this stuff that has materialized on the ground. Uh, you know, whatever it is, though, whatever it is, this stuff, it becomes their daily provision. They're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, they don't know that yet, but, but they're going to be here for a long time. And every single day, the Lord is going to provide. The Lord is going to make sure that they have me. They won't have to wonder, is the Lord going to provide for us? Because every morning they're going to wake up and it's going to be there for them. So, uh, so now we get to watch them go and gather these resources. So verse 18, it says, Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. 
Verse 19, and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until morning. So, so uh, this, this command, just for what it's worth for them, it's going to be really counterintuitive. Because what you're supposed to do, like if you live in an agrarian society, like you work your hardest to gather as much as you can and store it up for the next day. Like this, this command to only gather as much as you need to eat day by day. I mean, this, is what, this would have been how they were trained. It would have been against how they were trained in Egypt. But here, they're, gained, they're, they're trained to gather only what they can eat. And, and what they're told is they shouldn't save it. That each day, what they have to remember is you are reliant upon the Lord to provide for you. You are not reliant on yourself. You are not reliant on the things that you can gather. You're not reliant on your ability to store things up. You are reliant on the Lord. And so God's goal is to teach them how to actually obey a command that he's going to give them in the future about the ways that they should gather and that kind of stuff. But it's also to teach them how to simply trust him when what they would naturally do does not align with that. And so, so uh, they need to learn to rely on him daily. So now the question, will they trust God and do what he says, even if it doesn't make sense to them? Verse 20. They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. So, so the short answer, will they obey the Lord? The answer is like not all of them. There is a group of them who decides, no, we need to gather. We're not going to trust the provision. So, so they did what seemed right to them, not seemed right to the Lord. And so they're kind of zero for one on this whole obedience test. And actually, like we watch, you know, if you save it, it becomes a dangerous thing to eat. It reads warm, so you shouldn't hold on to it. And so the Lord shows them this. So, so they're 0 for 1. Verse 23. He said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. So now we're on like the second test of obedience, the second command that the Lord gave. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning. So, so again, God's goal is teaching them how to rest and rely on Him, how to follow His commands, how to, I mean, this is preparing them for, again, a command that they're going to get in the future, the command to honor the Sabbath. And so they need to be taught how to obey, even when this command doesn't make sense. Now, why doesn't it make sense? Well, because in Egypt, they have been worked day after day after day after day. They've not rested. The Lord is actually being really gracious and saying, I'm going to provide for you extra. You'll be able to store it up so that on one day of the week, you will actually be able to rest. So, so here's the question. Will they trust God and do what he says, even if it doesn't make sense to them? So verse 27. On the seventh day. Some of the people went out again. So they're 0 for 2 on this whole, uh, this whole testing thing. It's not going very well for them. So verse 28, uh, the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? It's very interesting. When the Lord looks at this, this is not just a problem with individuals in Israel. This is a problem for all of Israel. So now, now we have this problem. 
Okay, so remember, God's tests reveal what we're made of. God's tests reveal what we're made of. God is trying to set up his relationship with these people. He speaks to them. They respond. It's the only way that they're actually going to like be able to fulfill their purpose in the land, right? The, the, to go and be a blessing. But they don't even trust him enough to obey like the two simplest commands that he's given them. So the, the first test, it revealed to us their complaining hearts, which they... Those hearts continued into the second test. The second test revealed to us that they are actually not ready to listen to his word. They're not ready to obey his command. So what's going on here? What are these tests really revealing? So I want to talk to you about something called the relationship tree. That's uh, just a, um, I want you to imagine that there is a husband, and he is in the middle of a marriage. And that husband, all the time, he's talking about his marriage. And the words that come out of his mouth are, are praise of his wife. Like thankfulness for all the good things that she brings into his life. He often talks and he just seems, every time he opens his mouth about his wife, he seems awestruck about her. And he doesn't just say these things to her, but when he's with his friends, these words are coming out of his mouth. These, these words of praise about his wife, these words of thankfulness for all the good things that she brings to his life. And, and it's not even just with his friends, but even in his own thoughts. Like even in, in the quietness, the things that he's thinking about his wife is, oh, I'm so grateful she's here. Now, now is she a perfect person? Well, by no means. Are his expectations always met? Well, well no, they're not always met. But he, he recognizes that there's still so much to value in this relationship. So he speaks highly of her. He thinks highly of her. He thinks highly of his marriage with her. So, so I want you to imagine that these thoughts and these words are like a tree trunk. We're going to do word pictures here. So engage your creative mind. Imagine that these thoughts and these words are like a tree trunk. I want to posit to you two questions. The first question is this. What is that trunk rooted in? What are the roots of that trunk? This person who always has words of praise for his wife, words of thankfulness for the good things that she brings into his life. What produces this strong foundation of good thoughts, good words? Is it not gratitude? Like at the, at the core, at the roots of this tree that are forming his words, is it not gratitude that's there at the bottom? He, it's a thought that says, you know what, I could have so much less, but, but with her I have exactly what I need. In fact, I have more than I even deserve. So that's the first question. Uh, the second question is this. So if that's what it's rooted in, what kind of fruit is going to come from that tree trunk? Like what kind of fruit, what will result from this kind of attitude in his life? Will it not be faithfulness? Like kindness towards his wife, understanding, generosity, joy in his relationship with her, always seeking her best, like showing a genuine concern for her. All of these things are fruit of this, this kind of core idea of just saying and thinking good, generous thoughts about his wife. And so, so his part in the marriage is this tree of generous thoughts and words, and that tree is rooted in gratitude, and it bears all sorts of good fruit in this marriage. So now I want to flip it around. Why don't you imagine that there's a husband who, um, you know, complaints 
and frustrations in his thoughts and words and grumbling about his wife, they make up this tree trunk of their marriage. What is the root of that? Well, the root is a fundamental belief that you deserve something else. It's, a, a, it's an idea of entitlement. It's an idea that, that recognizes I've actually missed out on something. And what is the fruit? So if that's what it's rooted in. It's rooted in entitlement. What is the fruit? Well, it's harshness towards his wife. It's a lack of consideration for her. It's a prioritization of other things over her. It's a, a neglect of her. It's, it's actions that maybe even have an intent to harm or push away. Uh, and, and if it goes long enough, like the potential fruit could lead to unfaithfulness in this marriage. So this is what's going on in Israel's relationship with Yahweh. So I have a picture here that I want to show you. These, uh, these Israelites, they have this mass of grumbling inside of them. It keeps coming out. It's the thing that is most noticeable about them. As you look at them, the thing that you keep seeing over and over and over again is their dissatisfaction, their discontent. And we've, we've started to see that tree show us fruits of rebellion, fruits of disobedience in their life. And that tree, the question is, what is it rooted in? What is it rooted in? What is forming the source of this discontent of these words that they're having, and it finds its source in entitlement. You know what? They, they don't say it like this, but this is what's in their heart. We don't have fill in the blank. We don't have water, but we don't have good water. So God isn't really taking care of us. We don't have food. So God is, isn't really taking care of us. We don't have everything we need, so God isn't really taking care of us. I have a question. Are they still alive? Like, are they still walking through the desert? But, but they say, we don't have X, Y, or Z. It doesn't matter what it is. So, so because we think we don't have that thing, God isn't really taking care of us. So God's test, they're revealing that, that what is rooting this people is a sense of entitlement. And that sense of entitlement, it is producing fruit of rebellion in their life. And we see this played out in the, the third text in this story. Sometime later, they continue moving through the wilderness. And, and in verse 2 of chapter 17, this is what it says. It says, therefore, the people, they didn't just complain this time. They didn't just grumble. They quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So now we've, we've moved from complaining to downright fighting. They're actually now demanding of Moses, Moses, perform a miracle for us. Make water show up. Moses, we're tired of walking out here. You do this for us right now. And who's the miracle worker, by the way? It's not Moses. Why are they going to Moses? Why are they asking him? But, uh, but still, they seem intent on demanding from him. And Moses points out what kind of test is happening now. You know what, Yahweh, he's tested you, and he showed you what you're made of. You know what you're doing right now. You are testing him. So verse 4 of chapter 17, Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. So this actually gives us insight to the extent of the quarrel, right? Like they're ready to kill 
Moses out there in the middle of the desert, which if they do that, like, I don't know how they're going to make it. They're stranded in the middle of nowhere, but uh, the, uh, they're obviously not thinking rationally at this point. Um, so verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Go. Verse 6, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So I want you to, there are a few things to recognize here. First of all, there's an importance of the leadership of the elders here, that he's doing this before the elders, the role that they play for Israel. He's showing them, hey, uh, you know, to a certain extent, you guys have to be examples to the people as I show you this. And remember, they're testing the Lord here. And so what does the Lord do? How does the Lord respond to the test? Well, he gives them water to drink. Why? Because he's faithful. Because even when they rebel, even when the fruits of rebellion are making their way out of his life, he still provides for them. It's very likely that um, what's happening here is Moses strikes the rock as God actually makes a new spring in the middle of the desert. Like a new place that is plentiful, full of water. He shows them abundance even after they complain. And so verse 7 of Exodus 17 He called the name, so Moses names this place this time. He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Massa means testing, Meribah means quarreling. And we don't just read that um, they tested the Lord here, but we actually read what the test looked like. Their attitude shifted from mere complaining. It actually shifted to mutiny. They were ready to overthrow Moses. They were ready to demand things from him. They said, Moses, give us water. Moses, we deserve to have what we think we need. Moses, you're withholding something from us. Moses, I thought you could work miracles. Moses, I thought we were supposed to go to a land flowing with milk and honey. So Moses, is the I am really among us or not? All the while, they see him. He is there. And they say these things. And so they put the Lord to the test with this question. Their grumbling, it turns to disobedience. And, and then their disobedience turned to open rebellion. And then after that, that, that produced a further fruit. They turned to question God's character in the middle of all. And God's testing, it revealed what they were made of. Okay, so that's the end of our story today. Now, uh, fortunately, we get to go on and see exactly how God continues to respond to this test that he provided for them. But uh, let's just ask some questions for the so what. So what? Number one, because you think you're missing out, you miss out. Because you think you're missing out, you miss out. So the Israelites, you know what? They were not satisfied with God's presence with them. It wasn't enough for them. They were caught up in what they didn't have yet. And so my question for you is, what good are you failing to appreciate because your focus is on what you lack and not on what you already have? You know, a heart that wants more doesn't go away. So like you get that thing that you think you don't have, and you know what? You find something else that you don't. 
And you go and get that thing that you don't have, and you know what? You find something else that you don't have. If you are operating from a sense of lack, a sense that I'm missing something, if you feel like you're missing out on something, then you will continue to miss out on things, and you will continue to miss the good things and value the good things that God has already given you. So as those who are loved by God, here's the crazy thing. We have everything we need in Him even when we have nothing. So, so uh, I feel like so much of us doing spiritual disciplines is to get our heart to a place where we start regularly acknowledging that. That I have everything I need even when I have nothing. Now that's not to say like there's not a place for lament. The Bible, we see lament all over the Bible. A a, a place of acknowledging what you wish were more true, but how does each lament end? It ends with this sense of, but I have a God who's listening to me. I have a God who's with me. I have a God who has shown himself to be faithful and will continue to show himself to be faithful. And so even when I don't have these things, I still have everything I need. You know what, if we we're trying to just convince our souls to do these things, God has so abundantly provided so much for us in Jesus. And if we could just rest satisfied in that provision of of forgiveness from him, of a restored relationship with him, of being loved by him, of of being approved by him, of having his presence with us, of having his people who are encouraging us, like this could all be for us a wellspring of abundance and joy, even in midst of the hardest circumstances. But all too often, we actually become fixated on what we lack. And when we become fixated on those things, we miss out on the good that's already. So what, number two? A grumbling attitude needs attention as soon as possible. So I want to I speak really directly here. A grumbling attitude is indicative of rebellion in your heart. If you consistently have a grumbling attitude, and I'm not, I have no person in my mind who represents this thing for me. I'm just saying, like, you need, we need to do self-reflection. If your attitude is an attitude of a grumbler, it, it, it stands a chance of creating rebellion in your life. Like, if you find yourself frequently blaming others, frequently making yourself out to be a victim, discounting the good in a person and, and working to discredit them, like, I'm not saying that we can't vent from time to time. I'm saying that the pattern of your life is to consistently complain about others. If this is true, rebellion is not far. Like, the distance between blaming them and blaming God is very small. And you will use, if it takes you to that place, you will use your blaming of God to justify all sorts of disobedience against them, including how you treat them. So, so a grumbling heart, it will not lead you into Christ's likeness. It will lead you away from it. So if you see this pattern in your life, you see the root. I actually want to tell you, like, I think what you need to do, if you see these things arising, or even if you're wondering, I don't know if it's there or not, but I'm hoping somebody could watch out for it for me, then what you need to do is you need to go to a trusted brother or sister, and you need to talk to him, and then you, you need to say, I'm concerned 
that I'm a grumbler or that I have grumbling in my life and I need you to, to hold me accountable. I need you to help me see, build roots of gratitude for what the Lord is going to do. So I'd encourage you, if you see this happening and you reach out to somebody so you can actually start addressing it because if you leave it unaddressed, it will create the fruit of rebellion in your life. Number three, our testing, our testing reveals what God is made of. So remember, God's tests reveal what we're made of, but the amazing thing is our testing of God reveals what he is actually made of. And I want to show you two things that are really clearly revealed in this passage. Number one, our testing reveals that God is just. So Psalm 95, 7 through 11 gives us God's reflection on this thing that happened at Massa and Meribah. And so, uh, so I'm just going to read it for you. I want you to listen as the Lord, or as we hear about the Lord's response to what happened here. So verse 7, 95, 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had already seen my work. Verse 10, for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So not one time in our entire passage did we see the Lord say, don't grumble, don't complain. But here we see the fruit of grumbling and complaining laid out in that their hearts were not after the Lord. You know what? God doesn't, uh, so, so it reveals that God is just. God does not overlook what they did here. He holds them responsible for it. They don't get to see the land. But even when they tested him, like, you know what he still did? Still stayed with them through the 40 years in the desert. He still provided for them every single day. You know, their question, the question that they ask at the end of the story, it frames actually two stories for us. It it frames uh, what happened at Massa and Meribah. They said, uh, is the Lord among us or not? But then we read the next story. The next story when they go up to battle and the Lord actually like provides victory for them. Is the Lord among us or not? Well, God says, let me show you. Let me answer your test, Israel. The Lord stays faithful to them, even though they don't, they have to pay for the consequences of what their hearts were doing. Their hearts were running astray against him, but he still stayed with them and he still was faithful to them. So the second thing that it reveals to us is that God is gracious. Nowhere, nowhere for us are God's justice and God's graciousness towards us more evident than in the cross of Jesus. Because each one of us with entitlement in our hearts can actually approach the cross and confess our sin. And what we are told is that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to rest securely rooted in our restored relationship with him. 
And so maybe you've actually come to a place today where you are, you're just aware of complaining in your heart. You're aware of grumbling in your heart. I want to call you to repent. I want to call you, if you see entitlement there, to set that down before the Lord and receive his forgiveness to you. Because in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he shows himself to be so, so gracious to us. And that, that actually builds the roots of gratitude and thankfulness and love for our Lord that produce the kind of fruit that he desires to see in our life. So with that being said, Alliance Bible Church, would you pray with me? Father, this morning as we worship, as we reflect on what it is that you have done, Lord, we are just aware of our own hearts and Lord, it's so tempting to look at the story of the Israelites and go, how could they grumble or how could they complain? But then at the same time, Lord, we understand ourselves to do the very same thing. When even such small things in our life don't seem to be going our way. Lord, I'm even thinking just yesterday, just minor things, not working out for me and how prone my own heart was to grumble and complain and be frustrated about what's not going right because this didn't work out and that didn't work out. And Lord, teach my heart to have roots of gratitude, to value the good that you are doing. Lord, would you teach all of our hearts to rest in what it is that we have in you? Lord, to find deep wells in our relationship with you, to even say, though we might have nothing, because you are with us and because you love us, we have everything. Lord, these are lessons that we cannot teach ourselves. And so, um, Lord, would you build us into the kind of people that you desire us to be? Lord, would you uproot any spirit of complaining or grumbling that may exist inside of us? That from our lives might flow the kind of fruit that would actually compel people towards Christ. That would actually be reflective of Christ-like. Lord, these are things that you can do, and we thank you for the amazing grace that you pour out towards us in Jesus. We thank you that we can go boldly before the throne of God and know that we can have forgiveness, that we can have cleansing. Lord, these are great gifts that you offer us. So we thank you for them, and we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name.